0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: There is a passage in the Pali Canon. Reverend just says all the footprints of all the animals on earth could be foot, fit into the footprint of an elephant. In the same way all the Buddhist teachings, all dharmas can be fit into the four noble truths. I want you to keep that image in mind for the as we talk about today's topic which is the relationship of the four noble truths and the three characteristics. Years back I was listening to a dharma talk by a scholarly monk in Bangkok about a meditation teacher he'd heard who taught that right view was seeing things in terms of the three characteristics. He said, no, that's not true. Right view is the noble truths. And when I listened to the talk, I said, this is awfully pedantic. It's a kind of a scholarly issue, but not really a real issue in life. But then the more I've lived with these teachings, the more I began to realize that it really is an issue. Which is more important? Which is the container? The question is, which is the container for the other? Do the three characteristics contain the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Noble Truths contain the three characteristics? Because this will change the meaning of the teaching, which one is the, actually the giver of meaning, and which one is, has to fit into the meaning of the other. <coughs> and when you look at the canon, it's very clear that the Buddha places the Four Noble Truths as the container. It's one of the few teachings that he said is categorical, in other words, true across the board for everybody at all times. When he gave his own descriptions of awakening, it was in terms of the four noble truths and not in terms of the three characteristics. And when he began teaching, he taught the four noble truths first, the first sermon, second sermon, three characteristics. So the four noble truths for him were the container. After all, he said at some other point that all he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. And for a little footnote, that is, those are two things, not one thing. You probably hear, said, I teach one thing and one thing, only suffering and the end of suffering. It's not one, it's two. (laughs) Um, Ask anybody in a hospital. (laughs) And the Four Noble Truths basically expand on this point, and it basically comes down to the question of how you desire and how you act in the context of knowing that there is suffering and that there is... your actions make make a difference between whether you suffer and whether you don't suffer. So the teaching of the Four Noble Truths takes on... The assumption, okay, you want happiness And you're willing to act on it You act on that desire and you want to act skillfully That's another point the Buddha said The beginning of wisdom is when you ask the question Of a reliable person What, when I do what will lead to long-term welfare and happiness And the wisdom there comes in One, seeing that there is such a thing as long-term happiness Two, long-term is better than short-term And then three, it's going to depend on your actions So actions form the context Of what he's talking about now, actions, of course, are based on desire. And um, this is why the Four Noble truths focus on two kinds of desire. There's the craving that leads to suffering, and then there's the des- desire as a part of right effort, a part of right resolve that actually leads to the end of suffering. So the, basically what you want in here and what the Four Noble truths are giving you are ways to sort through your desires to see which desires are going to be helpful and which ones are not, which ones are skillful and which ones are not. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, each of the truths has a duty. The duty with regard to suffering is to comprehend it, and that means understanding it to the point where you have dispassion for it. We don't usually think that we're passionate for our suffering, but you look at people doing a lot of stupid things in life, and they want to do them, and they're going to suffer. So we are passionate many times for the things that actually cause us to suffer, or constitute our suffering. The duty with regard to the cause of suffering is to abandon it, the duty with regard to the cessation of suffering is to realize it, and you do that by developing the path, which is the fourth noble truth. Now within this context of the duties with regard to the truths, these are truths, as I said, that guide action, that give you some direction onto how you sort through your desires as to which ones should follow and which ones not to, and what to do. Um, The three noble, three characteristics fit into this context. Um, But first it's important to note that the Buddha never called them three characteristics. Inconstancy, stress, not self. Sometimes it's called impermanence, suffering, and not self. The Buddha never describes these as characteristics. He always describes them as perceptions. These are labels that you apply to things in your experience. And in the context of the duties of the noble truths, they actually help you de- develop some dispassion for the various things that cause you to suffer one of these perceptions, the perception of not-self, is not the perception that there is no self. The Buddha is basically asking you to pass judgment. If something is going to cause you suffering, if it's stressful, if it's changing all the time, is it worth calling yourself? Is it worth claiming as you or yours? And it's basically a value judgment. It's basically saying, no, not in this case. I don't, I don't need to identify with this. And so when you look at suffering, one of the ways of getting past your passion for suffering is learn how to perceive the things that are, that you're clinging to as the Buddha said clinging is the suffering the things that you're clinging to are not worth it why is that? because they're, they're in unreliable um, inconstant is my preferred translation for that because impermanence doesn't really get to the, the heart of the matter I mean, you can build a house on on a mountain and say well, the mouth isn't, mountain is impermanent but it doesn't matter to me because I can still build my house there I trust that the mountain's going to stay unless of course it's a mountain in California um. But you, know, you figure out long enough for me to live and be happy, and I don 't care about what's going to happen down the line you know in a couple of, couple of couple of eons. Whereas if you say that something is inconstant, it's like trying to f- sit comfortably on a chair where the legs are, in, are on, uneven. You have to sit very carefully and not get too relaxed because otherwise the ter- chair may tip over. I think that's what the word is pointing at is one in, in the term the poly does come from the term nicha, which means constant. And secondly, is you can't depend on these things to be there for you all the time. And if you can't depend on it, is it stressful or is it easel? It's stressful. If it's undependable, if it's stressful, why claim it as yourself? And so the things that you would cling to, the things that you would hold to, the things that you might crave, these are the things you want to see. I don't really get anything out of these things. It's, I've misunderstood my relationship to them. I thought they were worth the effort that went into it. Now that I can see it's not worth the effort. So you apply that perception both to the suffering and to the causes of suffering. Now, as for the path, that's something different. The path is something you have to do, and in order to do it, it's based on desire. You have to want to follow the path to the end of suffering, and you need passion there. So for the time being, you don't apply these three perceptions to the path itself. You apply them to anything else that would pull you away. For instance, in the case of virtue... The Buddha says at one point, there are five losses that can ha- come to us. Loss of health, loss of wealth, loss of relatives, loss of right view, and loss of virtue. And he says of those five, the first three are not all that serious. Health, wealth, relatives. You can lose them and still maintain your virtue. You can still maintain your right view. That's your, real pos- that's your real possession, because you can t- maintain those things all the way through life, and you know, even on into subsequent lives. But so many times it's, uh, it's because of our concern about losing wealth or losing our health or losing our relatives that may, we may, might want to steal or lie, do something dishonest, do something against the precepts. And so the Buddha says, in that case, you have to regard these things with the four perception, three perceptions excuse me, to develop a sense of dispassion for them so you don't cling to them so tightly, so you are willing to hold to the precepts rather than holding on to things that would pull you away from the precepts. Similarly with concentration, when you're getting the mind concentrated... You don't just watch it get concentrated and say, oh, it arises, passes away, and that's, that's insight. It's more, once it comes, that's something you've got to develop. So when the concentration comes, you maintain it. You're trying to create a state of mind that is constant, that is easeful, and is under your control. In other words, you're fighting against those three perceptions at that point. You're trying to find something that you can really rely on. As you get more skilled in the concentration, learn that you can rely on it, then it's easier to look at the other things around you that you've been holding on to and say, well, no, I don't really need to hold on to these things so much, they're, you know, they're causing me trouble, they're causing me stress, maybe it's worth letting go. So you're applying to the three perceptions to things that would pull you off the path, but you don't apply them, apply them yet to the path itself. Um, it's only when you've, you know, the, the concentration has done its work, the discernment has done its work, its virtue has done its work, that's when you develop dispassion for them too, because after all, they are fabricated, they're based on desire, and we we'll let go of those, then... If your mind is at the right point, now letting go doesn't mean you go back to being unvirtuous or unconcentrated, but you find that there's another alternative, which is when the mind opens to the deathless, which is the cessation of suffering. At that point, you let the path go. The traditional image in the canon is the image of the raft. You take the raft across the river. Once you get to the other shore, you let the raft go. You don't carry it on your head as you continue to travel. But in the meantime, before you get to the other shore, you've got to hold on. John's give lots of images for this One is of being a carpenter Working on a piece of furniture And while you're working on the furniture You've got to hold on to your tools When the furniture is done You can put the tools down So you hold on to the path You don't apply the three perceptions to the path Until it's totally done its work And that's when you say This, this still is something that's fabricated I want to go up to something that's unfabricated And that's when you let it go So that's the way in which The Four Noble Truths form the context for how you apply what the Buddha would call three perceptions. However, these teachings morphed as they got into the commentaries. And there's a question of why it happened. Um, One theory is that there were these debates that were being held in ancient India. The the king would come into power. He would say, I'd like to hear all the different religions in my kingdom debate a particular topic that I find interesting. And the Buddha had warned the monks, don't get involved in these debates. Because after all, once the king sets a question, you can't say, that's a stupid question. <laughs> but you know, the Buddha, when he was teaching, he would often say, people would come up with certain questions and he would say, no, this is a question that's not worth answering. Because he was in the position of control there and he was able to control which questions got asked and which questions didn't get asked. And as for a question that he wouldn't answer, he'd also give a reason for why it was not worth answering. So for example, the question, is there a self, is there no self? That's a question he put aside. However, that was a question that the kings of the time really were interested in ha- having an answer for. And so over the generations, over the centuries, you finally got some monks who said, let's answer the king's question. Otherwise, we're gonna lose support. And so they came up with the answer that there is no self. And that was the Buddhist teachings. And then they got themselves, you know, ever since then, 2,000 some years now, we've been entangled in what the Buddha called a tangle of views. what there is no self. You know. Who does the action? Who receives the results of the action? How can rebirth happen? All these other things. All this tangle that the Buddha uh, avoided by not answering the question. But anyway, what happened was the not-self teaching then becomes a no-self teaching and becomes a metaphysical teaching. This is the nature of reality. There is no self. Things are impermanent. Things are stressful. Things are not-self. This is the nature of reality out there. Nothing has any essence. And as a result, the three characteristics then become the context for the four noble truths. They become the categorical teaching in in the commentaries. At the same time, and the four noble truths begin to morph. Clinging, in other words, instead of being what suffering is, suddenly becomes a cause for suffering. We cling to things because we believe that they're impermanent. We believe that they're permanent, not not knowing that they are impermanent. Ignorance, which is another cause of suffering in addition to craving, comes from not Seeing things in terms of the three characteristics. Now, originally, ignorance was not seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. In other words, not remembering the guidelines for what actions are skillful and which ones are not. It simply now becomes a question of not remembering the true nature of reality out there. Um, We're ignorant. We assume permanence in things that are impermanent. If people realized the truth of the three characteristics that was taught, they wouldn't cling and they wouldn't suffer this becomes the purpose of mindfulness practice is just to see how impermanent things are and say, oh yeah, things arise and pass away. There's nothing there to hold on, so I'd just better let go. And finally, um, the picture of what happens in experience becomes a lot more passive. For the Buddha, he said, all your experience is rooted in desire. You're out there looking for, basically looking for trouble. (laughs) You're looking for things to feed on and you're looking sometimes with a lot of ignorance. But you're you're the active um, factor there. In the commentaries, experience becomes more passive. The mind is there, kind of nice and the calm, and then a sensory input comes and hits it, and then it reacts, rather than going out and looking for the input to begin with. So experience becomes a lot more passive in the commentaries. Now, this commentarial view is what has influenced modern Buddhism. Um, and you see this in many, many books, even in scholarly books. When they treat the Four Noble Truths, the discussion quickly morphs into a discussion of three characteristics. You know, we suffer. Why do we suffer? Because we think things are permanent, but if we knew things were impermanent, then we wouldn't suffer. Three noble truths suddenly become the context. Um, and when they describe the Buddha's awakening, it's described as the Buddha's seeing that things were impermanent, stressful, that there was no self. Even teachers, you know, and the secular Buddhist teachers who regret, reject the four noble truths accept impermanence as the, a metaphysical truth that we have to hold to. Now, as a result of this, four misunderstandings come up that you find common in modern Buddhism. One is there is no self. That means there's no agent. There's nobody doing anything. Um, and then it becomes the idea that people, that people suffer because they think they can resist change. I once saw an explanation of the Four Noble Truths saying people suffer because they resist change. If they just would accept and embrace change, everything would be okay. Tell that to somebody who's in a, in a you know, concentration camp things change you just embrace it you'll be okay that's not that's not the issue we do have we do have agency but it's we're taught that we have no agency in the new in the version of Buddhism second one is there is no such thing as long term happiness pleasures and pains just come and go without you being able to extend the pleasures or shorten the pains you just have to learn to accept that things are going to come they're going to go thirdly we're taught that to cling means to assume that things are impermanent excuse me things are permanent we hold on however if we could learn to hold on just briefly realizing their impermanence in other words embrace things as they come and go you've probably heard the image of the the dancer dancing with lots of different partners you'd leave this partner you go on to the next partner and you accept the fact that you're going to be changing partners all the time Um, then you're okay it doesn't count as clinging Images that you often see about this um, One, as I said, is the image of the dancer Second one, very common one Is that you're sitting on a beach watching the waves come in And if you try to hold on to the nice waves And push the bad waves away Then you're going to suffer But if you just accept the fact Waves are going to come and they're going to go Then you're going to be okay um, There is no such Ultimately there is no such thing as good or bad waves It's just waves coming and going um, and The fourth misunderstanding that comes up is that clinging means hold on to fixed views as to what is right and what is wrong. Now in this case, you you have to realize that when you just see things, the world is impermanent, things are stressful, there is no self. There's really no duties that are implicit in that. There's no way to say that you should do this or should not do this. People can react to impermanence in lots of different ways. Some people can say, well, it's impermanent, stressful, there is no self, let's go out and have a drink. (laughs) And it would follow logically from those those premises, right? Um, and so this becomes, there is the Buddha's recommendations as to what he should have done and should not be done are then seen as results of his cultural background. You know, the Buddha lived in a different period. We live in a new period now. There are new ideas of what we should and shouldn't do. And that's perfectly fine because after all, everything changes. Everything is impermanent. There are no right or wrong ways of interpreting the Dharma, except all change and it'll be fine. Um, and... An example of this way of thinking is something I saw a while back. I was watching a TV show. They have a TV show on Buddhism in France once a week. Uh, in fact, I, I, was, I was there one time and the producers asked me, why don't you do this in America? Um, like after all, we have a lot more Buddhist teachers than they have and they have trouble keeping new faces coming in. At any anyway, rate, there was a French Buddhologist on one day who was talking about dependent core rising and impermanence and the, the interviewer, a woman, asked him, so, what does this mean in daily life? And he said, it means that if two people are in love, they have to accept the fact that their love today will be expressed in different ways than what it was expressed yesterday. Now, and I listened to that and I thought two things. One, that's a really French explanation of the pentacle. <laughs> <de laughs> <benignalizing. laughs> and two, you can excuse a multitude of sins by saying, hey, my love today is different from yesterday. <laughs> so it's irresponsible is what it is (laughs) so what kind of views are they as I said one they're defeatist there is no true long term happiness in life you just learn how to accept things as they come and go and you'll be if you're peaceful about that and calm about that then you'll be okay another person who was on the same show was advancing this idea and the interviewer asked her isn't this defeatist isn't this depressing and pessimistic and she said only if you think about it (laughs) <laughs> so just don't think you'll be okay um, I could say I think a lot of Vipassana courses are like that um, okay it's defeatist it's irresponsible and secondly is this really realistic I mean, what do we cling to do we cling to things only thinking that are permanent I mean what are the things that pe- most people cling to most fiercely food and sex right any other candidates Children, okay. <laughs> do you think they're permanent? Do we think food is permanent, sex? is children? Are children permanent? No. We know they're not permanent, but we cling anyhow, right? And that's why we suffer. It's, it's, we're doing it fully knowing that these things are not permanent. And we cling to them anyhow. Why do we cling? Because we think it's worth it. It has nothing to do whether they have innate nature or nothing or permanent nature or anything. It's is it worth holding on? And we say yes. with the pleasure we get from it is worth it. That's why we hold on. So basically, what it is, it's a value judgment that we're making. We don't believe we don't we don't hold on to these things because we have a metaphysical view that they have in, inter, in, you know essential essence. We hold on because we think if I do this, if I act on this, if I hold on to this I'm going to get enough pleasure that's going to compensate for my holding on um, but as human beings we tend to be pretty bad judges of what's worth doing and what's not worth doing there was a positive psychologist you know the type of psychologist who studies happiness and he was <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. and he was interviewing people about what things that made them happy and, and then he had this arrangement with him that he would call them up at random hours of the day and if he happened to catch them when they were doing the thing that they were said was happy, and ask, are you happy? And it turned out the answer was, well, not especially. <laughs> 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 but then if he asked him afterwards, were you happy then? Oh yes, I was quite happy in you know, doing that. And he asked himself, why are people so foolish about their own happiness? Such bad judges of their own happiness. And then he thought about himself. He realized he liked to climb mountains. No, if anything is not worth doing, it's just climbing a mountain for the sake of climbing a mountain and coming back down. And he realized, while he was doing it, he was miserable. Cold, afraid of dying, whatever. But then he came back down, he couldn't wait to do it again. <laughs> so This is the way we are. And so basically what the Buddha is doing in the Four Noble Truths is to give us better standards of judgment, better means of judgment, what really makes us happy and what doesn't, and what we can do to gain happiness. So this analysis of, you know, it, taking the three characteristics as the nature of reality, and that's kind of the container for the Four Noble Truths, that's got everything backwards. Because it's teaching us views that are defeatist, irresponsible, and really not very realistic. They don't really describe reality as we behave. They don't describe clinging properly, they don't describe happiness properly. So let's go back and compare this again with the Buddhist teachings. For him, clinging, which is which he, const- he says constitutes suffering, is a type of feeding. We feed on things because, of course, we think we're going to get nourishment out of them. And this is not just physical food, but also emotional food, mental food. We're looking for the happiness we get out of holding on to these things. So that what this would mean in, in the Buddha's case, in the, from the point of view of the Noble is this idea that simply embracing things in the moment, being willing to let, let go, we're serial clingers. And, we do that, and we're do, we going to suffer each time we cling and have to let go, cling and have to let go. There's no real happiness there and there's no real peace in that. And so the Buddha's <laughs> strategy in dealing with this problem is that we have to see the drawbacks of our feeding. We, well, I was talking about this yesterday in, in the, in the, during, the, during the course. Is there are five stages to letting go of something you realize is, is unskillful. First is to see it come and when it comes, what's coming with it? What's What's the cause? Secondly, when it goes... How does it go? Thirdly, what's the allure? Why do you like it? In this part is of especially often for, hard for us to see clearly because we have some likes that we t- tend to hide from ourselves. And then finally seeing the drawbacks. that If you hold on to this, what actually happens? And if you actually see where the allure is and see what the a- drawbacks generally are, you will develop dispassion, and that's how you free yourself from that particular state of mind. So the three character, three perceptions that are applied to this comparing the drawbacks with the allure. Okay, this is what you think you get. This is what you actually get. Is it worth go- going for? And if you see that this is really what I'm getting for it is nothing I can really depend on, why go for it? If it's something stressful to hold on to, why go for it? And the judgment of not self is, okay, I let it go. As a result of following this, the Buddha says you can To do this, however, you need an alternative source of food, and that's what the path provides. In the the practice of virtue, you gain a sense of self-esteem. In the practice of concentration, you get a sense of visceral pleasure that is not a sensual pleasure. It's a pleasure that comes from, as we were working on earlier during the meditation, having a sense of having the breath flow smoothly through the body, having a sense of inhabiting a body that feels good to be inside. That gives you a pleasure that you can hold on to. Then as you begin to look at the other pleasures that you were going for and begin to see that they're not quite as good as you thought they were. The advantage of this is the Buddha says this eventually leads you to an experience of something that's totally unconditioned, which is deathless, and the three characteristics don't apply there at all. It's not inconstant, it's not stressful. Questions of self and not self no longer apply. Um, The image the Buddha gives, instead of having you lying on the beach watching the waves come in, he says you're actually crossing over a river, and you're going to be standing on firm ground where you are safe from the waves of the river. In this case, there's no quotation marks on good or bad waves. If the waves of the river can sweep you away, you want to get past. When you get on ground, you don't have to worry about them. The advantage of this, the Buddha's approach, is that, one, it gives you duties, not in the sense of duties imposed on you, but if you want to find happiness, so the Buddha says, this is what you should do. If you could look at the three characteristics, there's no duties imposed. Things are inconstant, impermanent. You can do anything you want. Grab for whatever you can. But with and understanding that we suffer because we cling, the cling because we crave and cling, but we can go past that. It's an action that we're doing that's not necessary. That gives you a sense of, oh, there's a course in my life where I can start making choices based on the Four Noble Truths. So it gives them some guidance. It also gives you some focus on what kind of changes do you have to watch out for. If everything changes, everything is kind of equal. But in, in the context of the Four Noble Truths, one of the things that you have to watch out for, as the Buddha said, that one of the most changeable thing, well, the most changeable thing in the world is your own mind. He says the mind can change so quickly that there's no analogy that's adequate to ex- express how quick it is. Even the blink of an eye is too is too slow. You've got to watch out for that. This is why we practice mindfulness: is to remember what guidance the four noble truths give and the reasons why we should stick with that guidance. If we forget that, we can change at any moment. So this is the real role of mindfulness in the context of the Four Noble Truths, is to keep us from forgetting what the Buddha taught, so that we can then apply it as we go through life. The second focus, of course, is on where are you looking for your happiness? Is it solid enough to support your happiness? That's the kind of change you have to watch out for. So the Buddha's seeing change in terms of the Four Noble Truths gives you some focus of where are the changes that you have to be careful about. It's the second kind of change where you've applied your hopes for happiness and placed them on something, this is where you have to develop your discernment. Mindfulness and discernment are the two big elements of the path. Um, So this actually puts you in control. There's something you can do to gain long-term happiness rather than just having to accept the fact that things are going to come and go. Um, Now, in terms of the views, uh, um, it's interesting that image of the raft we very rarely think about what does that river represent and the re- one of the things that represents the Buddha says is the flood of views the views that would sweep you away but the raft itself is composed of the elements of the eightfold path which include right view so right view is going to take you across other views you get to the point ultimately where you don't need views the purpose of right view is for you to look at your processes of holding on and you apply that to all the other things that are unskillful that you've been holding on to and finally you take that same view and you turn it on itself say so even this process of holding on to right view has some stress built into it. Now, it's much less than the stress that comes from holding on to other things. But when you get to the point where that's the only stress left, you say, okay, now I can let go. And this is how right view transcends itself. So this kind of view is always responsible. It provides guidelines for what you should and shouldn't do. It gives you focus on where you should, what kind of changes you, could, you should watch out for. As I said, it contains the seeds for its own transcendence. And then you compare the type of happiness as possible. The first kind of hap- the first happiness, taking the three characteristics as your as your context, is, as I said, it's very defeatist. And there's, no, there's no longer-term happiness, so satisfy yourself with little things as they come and go. However, the Buddhist is not defeatist at all. I mean, the Buddha is anything but a defeated person. As he once said, his name for the path is unexcelled victory in battle. You're going out there and you're doing battle with your own stupidity. You want happiness, and you're doing things that are causing yourself mis- misery. Now, that was Einstein's, you know, almost, that's co- close to Einstein's definition of insanity, right? You're doing it again and again, you think you'll we'll get a different, different result now. But it, that's what it comes down to. In fact, John Swatt would use that word, it's because of our own stupidity. That's what the Buddha's battling now, having us battle as well. So this seemingly pedantic point makes a big difference. And the question is, which do you want? The Buddha says an ultimate happiness is available. He's been teaching us swimming lessons to get the other side for 2,600 years. And where are we? (laughs) If you think about what this three characteristics Dharma does, it's actually siding with the advertising industry. It says, hey, look, total unchanging happiness is impossible, so content yourself with sitting on the shore. We'll bring you drinks and umbrellas. But don't count on us when a hurricane comes, okay? (laughs) And the waves get big. So the choice is yours. Those are my thoughts for the morning. (laughs) Are there any questions? We have a few minutes before we have to break.
0: Hi, so um I've personally found the Eightfold Path very helpful, and um, it feels like a probably a lifelong pursuit to understand it and, and work with it but I, I just have to be honest and I've been maybe practicing for about five years, mm-hmm. I don't really see any evidence that it's possible to get to the other side of this dream, and I'm actually okay with that, mm-hmm. but I just it's hard for me when people teach it because I um don't
1: believe it. Well, what do I say? Uh, John Mahabu had a great statement one time. He said, You know, the people who have attained nirvana, if they could take it out and show it to you, that's all you would want. So it is possible. The question is, to what extent do you feel motivated that you're really going to say, I'm, I'm, I want this enough that I'm going to sacrifice other things for that? And even if you don't get there, think of it as something that gives you some hope. <laughs> if you think it, well, we just die, and then we're born, and then we die. And we eat the Buddha's recollections of his previous lifetime. So he had this appearance, he had this name, he lived in this location, this was his food, this was experience of happiness, this was experience of pain, then he died. It, you know, birth, feeding, pleasure, pain, death. And if you just think about that, is that all there is to human life? It gets very depressing. So remind us, okay, this that there is this possibility. And people have been finding it. People of all all, nationalities and genders and ages have found it in the past. So it's available. At least that gives you some hope.
0: So could I just ask, when you find it, does it stay with you forever or is it a thing that just continuously comes and goes?
1: No, it stays. It makes permanent changes. I was talking to a Zen teacher one time. He said, how can any change be permanent? I said, chop off your arm, you know. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 so it, it, it hits you and you know there's, once you've seen the death lesson you re- re- realize the Buddha really knew what he's talking about and it ends your uncertainty about his teaching about, his, about the Dharma you also realize there was nothing that you would identify as you or yours in there so you're not attached to any ideas about who you are and then you realize it was through your own unskillful actions that you were bl- blinding yourself to this, o- this, this dimension. So you never want to do anything unskillful again. It makes that kind of permanent change. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Has oh. oh.
1: <laughs> this happened to you? I can't say. Why not? Because there's a rule against it.
0: Whose rule
1: is it? The Buddhists. Who told you
0: that?
1: It's in the text. <laughs> imagine, imagine all the monks who had. <laughs> yeah, imagine all the monks if they had these attainments. Everybody would be making merit with those monks, right? if met, all the monks who had these attainments were saying, hey, hey, I'm an Aran, I'm a Arahant. while everybody would make merit with those monks the other monks wouldn't get a chance to eat so, in other words, I want to you know, do the good that will lead to a good rebirth and one of the things is you, know, you find somebody who's you know, a highly attained person and you give something to them and there's a lot of, there's a lot of reward that comes from that So the Buddha said, okay, nobody gets to tell the lay people who's attained and who's not. So you can't tell us. Will you repeat the question? The question was, have I attained this yet? Okay, that was, she wanted to know. And I said, I can't answer that because the Buddha said not to answer that question.
0: So you can't tell
1: lay people? No, no. Can you tell your monks? Can I tell monks? Yes, I'll I'll repeat a question. Can I tell monks? Yes, I can. But you have to be very discerning about that too. Okay, there's a mic back there. Who, who had the mic? The, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. There's two mics. Thank you. Um, thank you for your talk about the three um, marks and the uh, Four Noble Truths. I work a lot with the um, teaching of the A Worldly Winds, and that seems like uh, a teaching that says that it's not possible to escape pleasure, pain, and the A Worldly Winds. Can you comment about maybe it's unskillful to work with that? in the beginning and it's something more towards the end or no, th- trying those, to understand those, 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 those teachings are actually very useful for just everyday life but realizing that this, these are the truths of the world as opposed to the truths of the practice this is what the world has to offer it has you know, gain loss status loss of status praise criticism sensual pleasure and pain that's it and the purpose of this is I don't want my mind to be, get distracted by these things so think of this in that category of things that you would apply the three, three perceptions to so that you don't get waylaid from the path. Correct under, is it a correct understanding of the um, sutta? The, the, um, even, I think it was said even the Buddha experiences the a big ones? Yeah, but he's not blown around by them. Okay. You know, the image they have is a stone column, you know, 16 spans tall, 8 spans buried in the rock. It's not going to move. And that's, not the, that's, that's that's the mind that has gained awakening.
0: Hmm. I would have said um, to Ananda, I think um, the sangha is the whole of the spiritual life. No,
1: no, no. No? No, no. no, no. Yes. He's admirable friends.
0: Admirable friends. And by
1: the admirable friend he meant himself. <laughs> <laughs> But then he went on to say, "It's because of him that we know that there's a path. Without him, we wouldn't be; wouldn't even know that there was a path. Now, we can't do. He can't do the path for us. But without him, we wouldn't know that there was a path. Hmm. So, in other words, it's it's a it's a necessary but not a sufficient cause.
0: Uh, I'm I'm puzzled. Uh, I thought uh, there was a an exchange where uh, the Buddha's. Uh, Assistant or cousin said to him, um, Oh, I, I think the Sangha must be the half of no, no, the. No, it's, it's admirable
1: friends are the half of the holy life.
0: Oh.
1: And by uh, an admirable friend, someone who is generous, someone who has conviction, someone who is virtuous, someone who has wisdom. And then you associate with that person and you try to develop that person's qualities. Because without that example, you wouldn't know how to do it. But then in that particular mm-hmm. sutta where he, you know, Ananda, he's, he's always the straight man. <laughs> he says these things and the Buddha says, no, 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 no. Like, you know, dependent rising is so easy. No, no, it's not easy at all. Spirit, you know, admirable friends are half of the holy life. Although, no, the Buddha says, no, they're the whole of the holy life. But then his illustration is, gonna, okay, I am the admirable friend for everybody out there because I found the way. Without me, the Buddha said, no one else would know the way. That's why we have to depend. That's how we depend on Him. Mm-hmm. But we depend on Him, and we take Him as an example, and we try to develop those same qualities within ourselves. That becomes our refuge.
0: Okay. Okay. Because okay, I was going to say then that uh, it was. It seems from what you were saying earlier in the talk that uh, it's okay for. Um, <laughs> for us to lose wealth um, our health our relatives so it just seemed um, uh, strange to me that Mm -hmm. uh, there was a a valuing of sangha and and lesser value placed on family relationships
1: no no (laughs) your best friends are the admirable friends i.e. people who are good examples now, sometimes your members of your family are good examples, and sometimes they're not, in which case, if they're not, then you've got to look for some a good example outside.
0: Yeah, but our children, I mean, we, we have to look after our children. Okay,
1: you, you have to be the admirable friend for your children now. Right. You've got to embody the good qualities. That's a whole another talk. <laughs> Do we have to break? Yes. <laughs> Do we have to break yet? How much time... Okay. okay, I guess that's all for today. Thank you Thank for your you. attention.